0: You're listening to a Discourse ZA production.
1: Hi, I'm Brian Williams, and we are back with The Small Print. And today, my guest is Mary Harrington. And as always, we ask people to introduce themselves, mostly because many of the people I talk to, I don't know all that well. So will you start off by telling us who you are or how you like to be introduced? (laughs)
0: Um, My name is Mary Harrington. I am a contributing editor at the UK current affairs magazine Unheard, um, I pinged Bronwyn out of the blue a few weeks back to say, hey, we should talk because I think we just have a bunch of common interests, and so so I'm here with a, with absolutely no agenda and nothing that I no axis that I really want to grind, but just just to kind of shoot the breeze and um, find out find out what Bronwyn thinks about everything really.
1: Oh, good. Fantastic. So this show is about, as it's literally called, the small print. We try to get into the the detail, the fine unintended consequences and trade-offs involved in a lot of the big conversations that are going to be shaping the future of our society. Ideally with a view to looking at how policy issues, either current ones or emerging future issues that are going to dictate policy, are going to affect us as citizens in whatever the new world order is shaping up to be. So a lot of the people we talk to either come from the background of economics, politics, or journalism, and we speak to quite a lot of futurists too. But I'm particularly interested in your views because you seem to cut across quite a lot of different subjects that I'm quite interested in, everything from sex and politics and, again, markets. And there was an article that you wrote a few months back, I think it was around about in May, when you were talking about the sort of marketplace of relationships. I thought that would be an interesting place to start because when it comes to issues of gender and family and marriage and money, everything becomes very, very interconnected. And of course, we set up these incentives through how our legal structures support or fail to support various different family dynamics. So maybe just to start off with the particular question I could get into, which is what's what's sort of gone wrong with the marketplace for families as you see it right now?
0: Well. I wrote that article um, as a it was a very long winded way of getting to grips with a question which has bothered me for some time, which is it's actually it's not even a question it's just a phrase people people talk routinely nowadays about the sexual marketplace, as if that's always been a thing. Um, and I've, I've been it's it's one of those phrases that sticks in my mind and then I go for a long run and it bugs me or it bugs me in the shower and it just hangs around in the back of my head and I think what's wrong with this, what's wrong with what's wrong with this picture. And so the, that essay was really an effort to answer the question you know why is sex not a marketplace, or why has it not always been a marketplace or in what ways has it become a marketplace and how is that changing. Um, so. And it ended up being a much more historical piece than I expected because I ended up going right the way back to Adam Smith's *The Wealth of Nations* and, act, or rather, not not so much *The Wealth of Nations* as the other book that he wrote, which he intended as a complement to that book, which but which is less often um, discussed than the wealth or less often quoted, which is *The Theory of Moral Sentiments*, in which he set out his his anthropology, which I think was meant intended as to be complementary to his idea of. You know his vision of the of human society and the invisible hand and so on, and in this he he imagined that he he came up with this idea of sympathy, which he, you know he wasn't the only person who talked about sympathy at that time. But his 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 I'm I'm paraphrasing, but his his understanding of sympathy was the the innate ability that humans have to experience or empathetically to experience what other people are experiencing, and in his view, um, moral sentiments arose from that capacity for empathy with other people, or the ability to experience things as other people was experiencing it. Um, and so um, and what I wanted to look at was the way in which that that actually turns out to be a very atomized and a very solipsistic way of looking at things. Um, and I wanted to draw, I wanted to draw a picture of the way in which our understanding of marketplaces shifted over the course of the transition from Um, a pre-modern a medieval society to a to to a modern society and how that's now changing again I took I took as that I'll get round to sex in a minute but bear with me Um, I took I took I took as that for for that of the metaphor of the marketplace in my own small town in in the shires in England um, which used to house something called a shambles which was um, it was a it was a, a, a physical marketplace for really for live animals and for selling animals and for slaughtering animals and so it was a pretty bloody and visceral place you know the animals milling around animals being butchered um, probably I, I don't know but you can imagine there'd be stalls there selling selling hot food and so it was it was it was very very bloody very visceral very right in your face. And over the course of the transition to the modern world, that market, pl- the, the shambles was eventually demolished. And what replaced it was a much sort of tidy 18th century marketplace uh, with shops around the edge and people would come and there's a little library in the middle and you know everything's much tidier. And the, the slaughter, um, the, the bloody business of survive life and death and entrails and meat and so on was sort of transferred to spaces outside of civil society. So now it happens on the margins. And I argue that you can draw a metaphorical parallel there with what happened with with the shift in the way people understood sexual relationships between the medieval and the modern era. So, in, so in, instead of a much of, of a pretty pragmatic and actually pretty sexual understanding of marriage in which um, you know, all you really needed in order for a marriage to be considered permanent binding and just for, forever after was for the, two, for the couple to have promised to one another without witnesses and to have had sex. That was all it took in the, in, in the medieval era for a marriage to be considered valid um but, uh, but as things shifted from a from an agrarian to an industrial footing um it was it was no longer acceptable for families who put a lot of effort into cultivating marriageable daughters for suitably eligible husbands um for those for those daughters to be seduced by somebody with a nice smile and i i don't and 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 a familiar manner um and and so all all, and so they they wanted they there was a lot of pressure for the state to become involved and for witnesses to become involved and for more safeguards to be put in place to the idea of marriage and so and out of that gradually you have you have an evolution into the sort of respectable bourgeois understanding of marriage where where bans have to be published and witnesses you know state representatives have to be involved for a marriage to be considered legal and all of a sudden it's a much more it's a much more surveilled and much more regulated matter because because when you look at the economics of what of of what's being constructed on top of the the basic sexual union, um, it's suddenly it's a much more complex thing, and it's much less rooted in place, and it's much less rooted in belonging belonging to. It, it's 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 not safe to leave it just in the hands of two people who shag them them, that's it. Um, and whatever, and but I wanted to develop that on um to to look at how that's changing again because w- when i think about the marketplace in my small town um it's it does better than than many physical high streets in in the world but on the whole the physical high street is declining you know i mean this is not news anybody who's who's been awake um reading anything for the last i don't know 15 years <laughs> can see that you know that, that market marketplaces now happen online and so i wanted to bring into that the idea i wanted to look at the way um relationships are, are formed now and actually when I when I think of the 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 dissolution from the sort of bourgeois industrial era understanding of how how we form relationships and why we form relationships has been liquefying for some time I mean that liquefaction was well underway when I was a teenager my mom was giving me advice which was perhaps appropriate in the 1960s which her her parents had given her you know if you go on a date with a young man then you, you don't owe him anything um because he's had the pleasure of your company and i I remember listening to this and thinking but people don't go on dates you know they hook up at parties you know this 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 doesn't compute and this was back in the 1990s and of course you know the, the whole the whole thing has has accelerated and liquefied still further now because now we have dating apps which were just coming in at the point where i was i was dating to marry which was some time ago now um and which i mean you know back in in the in the late noughties, um you could go on a dating website and find somebody who wanted to get married. Uh, and that doesn't, I mean, I'm I've been off the market for a long time, but that doesn't really seem to be how it works now. No. You know, you go you go on a dating website and you find, I'm not completely sure what, but not that. Um, so 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 what I wanted to and and what the the where I got to at the end of that argument is that we we seem to have arrived at a point where actually um what's being commodified now is no longer the marriage and relationships are no longer being ring-fenced as a sort of safe space external to the market which was what Adam Smith imagined he imagined that moral sentiments and sympathy would be a space which could be kept safe from the market and he sort of he he constructs the two in opposition to one another but in fact that the arrival of the internet has collapsed that and in fact now what's what's now being commodified is the whole domain of sympathy Um, the whole the whole domain of the soul if you like and really, you know, most, most of the platforms and you know, the platform economies that we're watching now are engaged in an increasingly intense um, race to the bottom when it comes to commodifying the human soul, you know, including obviously the sex drive, because that's what's one of the most powerful sort of basic drivers that we have. So I, I guess, I mean, it would probably have been quicker for you to be honest to have just read the article, than having, having uh, given we'll you link that, it. well link it's a
1: it. But. <laughs> but you put it exactly right. I think there's like a- particularly two threads that come through. It's the commodification of everything, absolutely everything. The commodification of care is particularly concerning. We get to the point that mothers feel like they need to be financially compensated for looking after their own progeny, which is, I think, quite astonishing, considering that most of us live in free western societies, whereby becoming a parent is pretty much entirely your choice as a mother. But to still see that you then sort of entitled to compensation for the care that you give out, I think is quite extraordinary. And that ripples through, of course, into romantic relationships too, and commodifying all of those interactions, not being able to hold that space for non-transactory relationships at all. I mean, I had this conversation with a few people last week and people were like, well, all relationships are transactory. They should be. And to a certain extent they are, but a transactory relationship based on a, an exchange of roles and responsibilities is quite different from literally putting a price on people's <laughs> actual human interactions. And the second point that you bring up there is the politicization of everything and the regulation of more natural human relations, which is something that only we do, really, as a species, as humans. We like to be involved in other people's business or in having a say over how our relationships pan up and what the rules are for them. And I think that links into the commoditization of all of this. Very closely, because as soon as something is regulated, it does become priced into the marketplace. There are very real sort of financial rewards or financial incentives to engage in legal marriage-type relationships or to quantify any sorts of care-based relationships. Because there's a as soon as it becomes regulated, it gets sort of trapped into that system, which I think is quite interesting from a sort of political philosophy perspective. In that we tend to think of the state as being Separate from the world of business and commerce and capitalism and everything else, but the two are really, really do go together. They're not separate entities. It's kind of the same thing. What do you think about that? Am I talking to your page?
0: <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the collapse of um, state regulation into into commercial into commercial interests has been again underway for some time. Um, I remember saying back at the beginning of the pandemic um, you know people you know all sorts of people had all sorts of hopeful ideas about how how the pandemic was going to shock us back into um, some measure of normality and I, I watched the I, I watched various hedge funds um, circling around various collapsing businesses and I, I I saw saw how that was likely to pan out and I thought you know this is Everyone still hopes that the West is going to become, everyone still hopes hopes that China is going to become more like the West by embracing capitalist norms. And, you know, to my eye, the pandemic is going to force everybody to become more like China, um, because the the only way that um, the commercial world is going to be able to survive um, all all, all of the sort of pretend voluntarism that we still ascribe to it, um, it, the, the only way we're going to be able to keep all of that intact is by, is by a massive state subsidy of basically everything. So the the only way we're going to get through the pandemic is by nationalising everything, which basically means that the West just becomes China, with a few sort of opt-in rituals that make it look a little bit more like we like we signed up to this voluntarily. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, I would say I would say that the the the, the total convergence of the state um, and the, the the business interests in the state is now. Certainly in the United Kingdom and certainly in the United States, you well, on its way to being complete, um, at least at least when it comes to bigger businesses. I've, I've seen I've seen nothing, nothing to disabuse me of that. Um, I mean, how it, what the terrain looks like in South Africa, I'm, I just I'm not well enough informed to understand in detail what's happening. My, my, my sense is that, you know, your your political and social terrain is quite different. So I don't really know how it's working for you over there. But but certainly in, in in highly highly developed economies and highly developed, you know, techno highly highly technologized um, where, in societies where there's very little space outside techno capital, you know, that that convergence is, is a done deal. And where we go from here, I think is a is an interesting question.
1: Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's that much of a distinction here in South Africa. The main difference being that we have a weak state rather than a strong state, but the same ideas are in play, the same policies are trying to be pushed. I think it's quite interesting to see how. Our, All of these sort of agendas and all of these these things that we've been dabbling with in terms of more censorship, more regulation, more control being deferred to central authorities are quite consistent. Whether you come from a rich market or a poor one, of course, how they are actually implemented depends on how strong your state is. So I have joked quite a lot saying that I think the best place to be in the world right now is in a state or that that is not in a particularly good state. So a weak state will be less able to implement a lot of a lot of these things that we're talking about. But it does tend to be quite inevitable. And I was having a conversation with another friend who I will not mention because they might, they might be horrified, that I've dragged them into this. But talking about how Hitler himself said that one of the best things about having and building a totalitarian state is that it forces everyone else to become totalitarian too, in order to compete with it, which is hard to argue against really, which comes back to the point you're making about China versus the West. And it's essentially the same thing. This is not the Cold War sort of 2.0. It's not quite the same thing because they are so completely in bed with each other. The, the Beijing and Washington consensus need each other as much as to use American politics. The Democratic Party needs the Republican Party in order to survive. They are entirely enmeshed. If you look at what's happening now with the Chinese economy and how that's falling into a US debt crisis, it's all part of the same system. It's all part of the same debt-based system that is increasingly requiring the sort of growth at all costs in order to fuel. That is, of course, the catch with any debt-based business, economy, or nation, is that you have to have growth. And that growth often has to be forced in order to continue, which is why we see more and more economic manipulation of everything. And we see more and more sort of requirements for people to participate in this game, if not voluntarily, then a bit more by force. So everything seems to be converging at the same time, everything from central bank digital currencies with programmable money that can be taken away if you don't behave and fall in with the rules. And what we have right now is actually the technological ability to actually do that. And the temptation is just too great from anyone from any sort of point of power or wealth to really say no to these things. What does it mean to give up a little bit more privacy or a little bit more freedom in exchange for a little bit more of the your commitments to the the greater good, which is definitely the way we seem to be pending at the moment. So as soon as you have very, very big populations, we're very difficult to manage. I mean we are very messy as human beings. You know, left our own devices, we cause chaos and complexity so it's much easier to harmonize us and to make sure that we're all playing by the same set of rules and i think this brings back to that whole point i was talking about earlier about the commoditization of absolutely everything yeah, i think it's the not just commoditization. Very, strong,
0: very 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 closely connected yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've, I've argued elsewhere that um i, I borrowed martin heidegger um, his and his idea of standing reserve um this this idea of under under technology, Heidegger argues, um, everything becomes a standing reserve. Um, as it becomes a resource to be to be instrumentalized in the service of technology. Now, of course, he was talking he was talking you know some time before the invention of the internet. But I but I I don't I don't think he'd have disagreed with the idea that you know under under platform network platform oligarch conditions you know we've we've simply been able to add to the list of things which are now standing reserve a whole range of human emotions human longings human desires and if you like that the higher needs of the soul um and and in a sense in you know the, the transition to to commodifying those aspects of of human life are, are simply just it's it's the same mechanism moving on to strip mine a new set of resources having exhausted an older one um and yeah and and it's 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 my view that you know those those parts of humanity which make us human are fundamentally the things which resist being turned into standing reserve, and that, that actually if you look historically, for example, at the his, at the history of um, Western colonialism, a huge amount of it has been about sometimes forcibly transforming from you know relational goods tra- transforming things from being from relational goods into standing reserve, you know whether you're talking about the the expulsion the the Uh, enclosure of the commons in Britain or so or for example the punitive expedition in Benin was one that I I cited as an example where um, essentially that was about um, an African nation that didn't want to engage with with the British on on the the British on British terms of free trade Mm. and and what what eventually went down was a massacre at the end of which um, having having completely destroyed the city of Benin they the, the British cut down their sacred tree and installed a golf course with the nineteen, with the with the, the final hole where where the secretary used to be, I think nothing nothing could speak more eloquently of of the, the violence that sometimes involved in transforming things to, from relational goods to standing reserve. Um, and I mean, and, and to my eye, pretty much the same process is underway when you when for example you transform um, the the relational goods, you know, the, the the relational business of forming an intimate partnership into something which can be monetized on OnlyFans. You know, it's it's very much the same. It's 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 very much the same order of thing as as massacring the population of Benin and then installing the golf course where their sacred tree used to be. So, yeah, as it, soon as it's monetized, it's it becomes same,
1: yeah. flattened and, and tradable, commoditizable. Also yeah. means sort of makes it more interchangeable, makes us all fungible rather than non fungible in, yeah. yeah, in the yeah, yeah. in our sort of place in society. But I think it's a really interesting point that when it comes to sort of debates that take place in political consensus and social media. You tend to have people that are either arguing against for a, for a, against capitalism or for more statism. But for most of us on the ground, it makes almost no difference, whatever that yeah. sort of totalism comes from. Is a rule by a platform that's managed by a for-profit board all that different for a rule by a platform that's managed by a, a less for-profit to more communitarian kind of governments. It actually makes no difference. What we're really talking about here is a difference between the individual as a human being and the individual as a human resource in a much more totalitarian state, because that's, that's the tendency that's coming from everywhere. And that's hard to talk about because it's so much easier to fall into sort of binary thinking around political agendas and to who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. But it's not even a case of that. It's a it's a it's a case of a conversation around a completely faceless bureaucracy that is trying to flatten you into a particular form to turn you into a resource and to remove you from your personal identity and clawing back that little bit of space. But I do speak quite often that any sort of freedom and any sort of whether that you're talking about privacy or physical freedom or common ground or whatever whatever that case may be is at risk of the tragedy of the commons because there's always a reason for someone to reduce that common space. There's always a special interest group that stands to gain by reducing that common ground. And there's very little that you can actually gather together in order to defend that. Because the the value of that, that common ground, that space, whether it's privacy or freedom or literal plots of land, it's only valuable when it's actually distributed. So the value is distributed. It isn't concentrated in a particular individual's hands. So it's very hard to rally people with more sort of libertarian or libertine tendencies together because by definition it's almost an oxymoron, right? How do you <laughs> how do you how do you gather people together to defend essentially the indefensible? Because there's always a reason for more commodification, there's always a reason to take away. A little bit more of that private space and hand it over into the sort of the, the, the common good setup. I'm just not sure how you unravel this at this point, given that we now have the technological ability to do a lot of this flattening for all intents and purposes. I think that the most compelling example for me to sort of maybe illustrate this point so I don't sound quite so crazy is what's happening with the commodification of our bodies. I think that as soon as you have any sort of national health insurance, whereby the commons, the collective, the taxpayer, whatever sort of economic system you have, is taking on the risk of individuals' bodies and the maintenance thereof, that collective has a right to surveil and to control what sort of risks you take on as an individual and i find this particularly fascinating because our modern welfare state which sort of took off everywhere in the world after the second world war is less than a generation old so we actually have no idea how this plays out you know over over time and the tendency is that essentially what what we have not realized is by training away our risk to other people or sort of collectivizing that risk we also sort of giving up the right to our own person. We now have a price of how much we are worth investing in, in terms of healthcare and in terms of education. And we have an obligation therefore to make sure that we are actually providing that value that we're taking for society in exchange. So this comes through in everything from getting people to wear seat belts or masks, which might be fantastically good things, all the way through to things like meat taxes and sugar taxes and what you're allowed to wear even. I don't know if you know in my country last year, the beginning of COVID, our government put out a notorious piece of legislation where they where they just told us what clothes we were allowed to buy, only only appropriate clothing for the winter. Uh, infamously, on that list, they said no crop bottoms. Nobody really knew what a crop bottom was, but you got to the point that the government that is you know, responsible for protecting and paying for us even felt it was within their mandate to tell us what clothing we we're allowed to purchase and wear during a pandemic. So I think it's really interesting that that sort of, you know, when you try and trade away a lot of your responsibility in exchange, you have to give up a lot of your freedom. And it's not something that an individual can opt out of because this is now a collective game. And that that sort of tends to where does that actually stop? As soon as you can categorize no harm as being a risk, then it's not even over to your own body that society has a say as to what you can and should do it's It's also over what you, how you can relate to other people in the public space. So I think it's also really, really interesting when you start to see the debates coming out now that very serious people are saying that they don't want a future ever where anyone should be allowed to walk around mask-free in public, whether there is or is not a pandemic. we should we should consider that you know any risk for any particular, any disease coming forward is a good enough reason to close off that common space even more forever, because where do you stop when it comes to risk? What kind of a monster are you if you're not doing your part to minimize risk as much as possible, not just for yourself, but for everyone else? So I think that's a that's a really interesting conversation. I would say that, that- probably ties into a lot of what we're seeing right now, where it's not like some malevolent conspiracy to control us. Rather, it's just the logical conclusion of the game we've chosen to play. By separating risk and reward, we have given up perhaps more than we thought we were going to have to in that bargain.
0: This is a really interesting terrain because I think it, I think actually here, it's my observation that this, this nuances quite a bit by country. And in fact, local conditions on the ground make a big difference to how this plays out in mean, local cultural norms and legislations. And, you know, it's very complex because yeah. I, listened, I listened to what you're saying and I recognize the discourse that you're that you're speaking about, which to my eye emanates emanates most strongly from American coastal elites. Um, I can't I can't speak to the situation in your country, obviously, but it's very much a minority in the United Kingdom, which is interesting. Um, and I think you know, speaks to speaks to specific cultural norms in the UK and a, a sort of a, a fun, an ambivalence that the English generally. You know, we, we talk a good talk when it comes to safetyism, but actually we don't believe the rules should apply to any of us as individuals ever. Um, and when I th- I was in London yesterday, nobody was masking. You know, you go to the shops in the UK. You know, I live a, I live out in middle England. Nobody masks. It's, it's just everyone's sick of it. Um, somebody texted me, it was my daughter's fifth birthday party the other day, we hired a bouncy castle, it was covered in screaming, sticky kids all sort of you know no no covid protocols no everyone i think anybody would have people would have looked at me like I was insane if i'd suggested that the parents should should attend you know wearing masks outside with their five year olds all running around licking each other or whatever you know this is everyone they they decorated cupcakes and and took turns licking the spoon it was all very unhygienic i I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that somebody texted me at the beginning of very nice of the day were <laughs> oh, sorry
1: very nice 1990s like Okay, exactly.
0: (laughs) You know, I promised myself in the middle of the first lockdown that, you know, the moment the moment it was okay again and everybody stopped being quite so crazy about it, that I was going to hire a bouncy castle and I was going to cover it in children. And I was so happy when I finally got to do that. uh, Follow the law, but but that's enough. Yeah, right. You know, it was a it was a symbolic moment for me that said, you know, actually, we just got through something and I don't know quite where we are now, but And so in Britain, I mean, all of this really to say that in Britain, you know, amongst certainly outside neurotic, um, neurotic rich people, um, extreme hygiene theatre is not really a thing. how that how that relates to the I mean but but and yet we have the most um, fiercely defended nationalised healthcare system in the world so I would suggest that at least in the UK those things don't necessarily map one to one onto one another um, I would also offer as a counterpoint to um, the socialisation of medicine and the commodification of the body that in fact Perhaps counterintuitively, the NHS has functioned so far in, on, in a, on a slightly different track here mm. um, as a bulwark against the extremes of transgender medicine, where I think I mean, insurance-based health, health systems have offered a perverse incentive to accelerate the the rollout of transgender medicine because I mean why would you not if you're running if you're if you're operating in an insurance based system extend the scope and complexity of healthcare at every possible opportunity whereas if you if you have a socialized healthcare system the the instincts of the system as a whole are are fairly conservative you know we it effectively you know inevitably with a socialized system it it results in a measure of rationing it can't not. And that that much was clear even at the beginning of the national health system. Um, but but one of the one of the outcomes of that is that you know there are there are very fraught public debates in Britain about what should or should not be available on the NHS. Um, and this is this is a standard feature of British tabloid discourse. You know. Insert name of insert name of possibly optional healthcare treatment and insert much rumphing from the tabloids about the fact that this is now available on the NHS and what about our cancer patients and their long waiting lists. I mean this is this is a standard tabloid trope, but 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 when it comes to um, perhaps some some aspects of identity-based medicine, as I like to think of it. Um, it's it's serving it's serving as a buffer and it's serving to to decelerate the sort of headlong drive into transhumanism which is evident in some other countries where perhaps there's a perverse incentive in the opposite direction to accelerate that trend so I would say I would say that the the political and economic and Mm. social um, textures of this are quite nuanced and probably depend a lot on local legal and cultural conditions so and it's not it's not as straightforward as um, socialised healthcare necessarily resulting in a predictable set of effects. You know, it's it's much more textured discourse than that. I would
1: go in a slightly different direction there. And that's like I was saying earlier, we'd like to frame these debates and saying either it's free market capitalism or the state provides the service. I'm rather getting at that all roads are kind of leading to Rome. So I currently live in a society where we have an insurance-based healthcare system. The government's trying very, very hard to turn that into a national healthcare system, much modeled on yours. But what is quite interesting is that the same company that is our biggest monopoly, almost, medical health insurance company here in South Africa, is being involved with quite a lot of some ledge based behavioral sort of points-based healthcare shoving going on in the the UK too. It's the same company, the same algorithm. They also actually are partnered with the Chinese government and one of their biggest sort of insurers over there. And what I'm kind of saying is that all roads really lead to more information sharing, more society, having a quantified claim over your body going forward. I don't think that not nationalizing the healthcare actually changes this at all. This all kind of tends in the same direction. I'm sure you've heard of the, the Sovereign Individual book, and I think that there's a quote towards the end of that that, that that really sort of speaks to this. And that says that basically the Western capitalist system has been more efficient and more effective at nationalizing basically the bodies and, and the property of citizens than the communist government was. In, in the USSR, effectively, all sort of roads tended up towards a, a greater centralized, say, over what's going <laughs> on, on in the world of, of individuals and a more sort of flattening and sort of, con, kind of basically just turning it towards the, the conformity of how we all behave in society. So the debate that you struck. have in the UK...
0: I was very struck reading Benjamin Bratton's book recently um, and what he what he defines as a positive biopolitics um, and an epidemiological view of society, um, which on my reading, at least, um, sees all of us as kind of uh, interchangeable meat puppets that need to be managed in aggregate um, via a series of sort of semi-autonomous um, big data algorithms that nudge us in this direction or that in order to optimise the kind of human swarm, um, which is, I mean, in, in a way, he's kind of, he, he's really only saying the quiet part out loud. Um, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's a mask off moment for something which is kind of evident, I think is a sort of, you know, unifying theme of everything that we've discussed in this chat so far. Um, so it it shouldn't really come as a shock. I mean, it's startling to read when when you see it all just spelled out on the page there and then you know with the with the with the coder and this is all a good thing um but what what's what's astonishing to me um reading it is the 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 complete it's it the, there's a it's not just an indifference to the idea that humans have an interiority or that humans may you know that, there's, that there exists such a thing as human subjectivity or interiority it's this idea that actually proposing proposing that there exists such a thing is is not just outdated it's bad it's reactionary um you know the, the the human we effectively he's saying that we need to abolish the human soul if we're going to govern people properly i mean that's yeah. that's my take that's my central takeaway from the whole book and that what we need instead is planetary scale computing to manage the human swarm and it and, and you know as you've as you've pretty much said that that seems to be generally where we're going
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, it's this nudge and jump through the various different hoops and sort of flatten, fall in line. And and you can't argue against it, because how do you argue against more safety or how do you argue against more health or a or, or greater quality of life? You know, these are the things that are basically being debated. I mean, everything from down as simple to things like cameras in the streets, which I know that you have quite a lot of. I think at one point the UK had more cameras per citizen than anywhere else in the world. I know no, we are trying quite hard too, but we've got a huge crime problem here in South Africa. I mean, depending on who you speak to, some statistics say that as a as a woman, you have like a one in four chance of being raped in your life. You know, like how can you argue against street cameras and, and facial recognition surveillance in your suburb, against those sorts of <laughs> against those sorts of systems. And likewise on the on the sort of more sort of bodily side, whether you are with a for profit insurer or whether you are being insured by your state or your government, how can you opt out of, you know, wearing your Fitbit and making sure you're doing your 100 steps a day if other people are going to be subsidizing your couch potato habit, right? How do you, how do you actually honestly argue against that in the face of that sort of very obvious logic? But those are still talking about sort of real harm. So I think it gets more interesting when we start to redefine the said harm as risk, because then it becomes an infinite, infinitely elastic conversation. Almost nothing can be unjustifiable in terms of the, predict, the protection against risk. And if harm itself, even the risk of, of harm, and I think you can redefine harm as well as not just being physical harm, but also being sort of mental harm. Then again, you have an almost infinitely elastic budget from which to, you know, increase control, surveillance, lack of freedom, whatever you want to call it. So, and I probably sound a little bit libertarian now, but it's, it's really the point. There's almost no policy. There's almost no collectivist policy that cannot be justified, whether you're a for-profit and entity well, we're already seeing or a state's um, instance.
0: We're, we're already seeing public health um, being, being deployed routinely um, as a... As a justification for whatever it is that people want to push. I mean, we and in fact we saw that even in the earliest days of the pandemic. You know, there were there were protests which were clamped down on because of COVID security. And then there were protests which were encouraged because whatever it was that they were protesting about was, so was, was, was possibly redefined as a public <laughs> health emergency. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, it, it's everything that, that that's just one case in point. There are they're legion once you start looking
1: yeah exactly it says uh, how do you how do you argue against that It's, it's completely unjustifiable you have to be prepared to be a heretic to speak out against any of this Because sooner or later, someone's going to say that, you know, but what about the babies, right? I mean, even the sort of Apple privacy thing that was actually overturned because there were people far better than me that arguing these sorts of cases that said that, you know, maybe perhaps treating all of your customers as being guilty and already strips, digitally strip searching their content before they've even been suspected of a crime might be a bit of an overstep. But then again, the policy was initially justified as to how can you not prevent a single instance of child sexual abuse? How how could you argue against any measure that could save even one child's life or one child's future? And that's the argument that you have to argue against. You have to be prepared to be a bad guy and say that actually I'm prepared to take on more risk than perhaps the next guy is. And that's almost impossible to argue against and then still, and still be, come across as, a, as an, on the, being on the right side of history. It's just too easy to sort of slander you, to sort of drag you down to being the pariah for not doing everything in your power to reduce that risk. But then you come back to the whole sort of concept of the, the tyranny of the minority and how over time in groups, the most intolerant always wins. The person with the lowest risk tolerance tends to get their way if everyone else does not have strong preferences. The strongest preference wins in these sorts of debates, not the largest majority. So this is not something that even the democratic process can prevent you against. I mean, like I've been doing quite a lot of press here in South Africa about the various different you know, attributes of how, how good or how bad things like vaccine mandates are. And, and the logic is that if you are a business, if you want business, you probably should impose a vaccine mandate on your patrons because people that want, or patrons that want vaccine mandates won't patronize your establishments if you don't have one, whereas other people who might not want them would still be prepared to go through that in order to eat your establishment. It's the the most extreme preference that wins through in these debates, which is very difficult, again, to argue with. But you're, you're, you're okay with being on the the, the the wrong side of current history, but hopefully the right side of future history. Definitely in progress. Definitely based chance. on 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 your on your articles and. I don't have much of a self-preservation instinct myself, so I do tend to <laughs> talk about these things, which is, I think, why we connected a bit on Twitter. But, but how do you deal with that? I think that's maybe a, a useful question for people listening to this who, who are a bit horrified by the sort of the seemingly inevitable march towards more collectivism, more totalitarianism going on. Whether you're a capitalist or a socialist, there, there are some of us that are concerned about these things. How have you managed to be the the voice of unreason, as, as I suppose, that some people would categorize you in the space.
0: I think it helps that I don't believe in progress, and I kind of say that up front. Um, I don't think it's a thing. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's, I don't think providential, uh, I don't think we're on a march towards never ending improvement and the potential end goal of heaven on earth. I just don't, I don't believe that. You're Not um, a singletarian, you
1: know, not going towards a singularity and trans no. a single transhumanism, up, computer upload not <laughs> for if all I, of us. No,
0: not if I can help it.
1: Yeah. I, I'm with um, you on I, that I, one.
0: <laughs> I don't believe in I don't believe in progress, at least not in the not in the sort of providential liberal sense. I think you know human human culture evolves. That's obvious. Um, but the I, I don't think the net. Some I don't think the the sum total of human felicity is any greater now than it was say five thousand years ago. Or at least I've, I've seen I've seen nothing nothing that convinces me of that. And the only way you can argue that the that things have improved over the last five thousand years is you know is by defining your terms. And the moment you define your terms, you've already begged the question um, because you've. <laughs> so so there there is there, there's no there there isn't really anywhere to stand from which you can plausibly argue for um, progress as self-evidently a thing. So I just don't believe in it. Um, and and I, I think that, that helps because when people tell when people tell me, well, that's not very progressive. I'm like, so what? Yeah, I don't believe in progress, so no. Of course, I'm not progressive. Um, but also, also, I I think I'm just difficult to cancel. Um, you know, I, I started out. Um, I, I sort of fell into journalism by accident at the age of forty, um, from a stint as a stay-at-home mum, and it's just very difficult to cancel a stay-at-home mum. Because I mean, what, what what are you going to do? Fire me? And so I've I've just what are you going to you know short of short of convincing my husband to divorce me, which is just on your a, a Twitter mob is unlikely to manage to do. Um, it's very difficult to it's very difficult to cancel the stay at home mum. And really, the worst thing that can happen to me is that I go back to being a stay at home mum, which is a nice life. I mean, you know, there's all I've ever really wanted to do in life was to be left alone to read and talk to interesting people. And there are and, and really there are there are much worse. Standpoints from which to do that than being a stay-at-home mum, so I'm I'm kind of I, I sort of don't care I guess, and also you know but I'm you know I'm not short of people willing to publish me as things stand, so I just don't feel like I am on the receiving end of any particularly serious flack, as things stand. I, I think the, these with these things, it depends a great deal what your commitments are and who you owe favours mm. to and what your social circle is and so on, and it's it's sort of it's it's fine for me but I know I have friends for whom it's you know their situation makes it makes it a lot more sensitive you know particularly friends in academia or friends with Mm. with a set of commitments that 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 complicate that and you know there's no there's no question in my mind that you know there are there are blasphemies now in a way which wasn't the case even 15 or 20 years ago Um, literally
1: they're literally blasphemy laws (laughs) in Europe which is astonishing (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 no coincidence that hate crime laws, when John jumped onto the statute book almost simultaneously in in the United Kingdom with the final abolition of blasphemy laws, because it is in in my but but I mean, you know, I'm I'm not a libertarian here, because I'm in, in my view, it's not possible to have a functioning society without blasphemy laws. You know, we can argue over what what constitutes blasphemy. But the idea that we can do without blasphemy is for the birds um and i think it's a much more interesting question you know what what actually constitute you know what what do we what do we consider blasphemous and why i think is a much more interesting line of inquiry than you know whether than arguing interminably about whether or not we should have blasphemy laws i mean i think i think we could do with a better set of blasphemy laws than the ones we have because the moral content of the one we the ones we have is um uh, i i don't think the prognosis for it is very good um because it it's
1: inconsistent they're logically well, inconsistent as a set which well, makes it impossible
0: that, to talk about, that's, right? That, no, not even that is, it, it's, that's not even the problem. The problem is that they, they're fundamentally very atomistic. Um, you know, if, you're, if, if, if the only thing which really constitutes a blasphemy is um, sinning against somebody's ability to define themselves wholly with, uh, with, without any reference to reality or other people... Um, then the, the logical endpoint of making that your of making selfhood your sacred value is is a very brittle and and, and actually very volatile society because I, I, I just don't see how it can end except in the sort of Hobbesian state of war war of all against all or, or alternatively the emergence of you know, a new a, a new set of ideologies to to try and keep a lid on that you know I, I don't see how we can not end up with Leviathan under those circumstances. So, which which kind of speaks to everything that we've been discussing here, you know, if you, I, I remember coming across, back in the days when I was reading theory at university, you know, wandering off on, on funny, down, down, funny library rabbit holes that I wasn't, met, that had no relation to what I was meant to be reading about and there was one one phrase that stuck in my mind ever since because i thought it was so prophetic and i cannot remember for the life of me where it came from which drives me crazy but it was that it was talking about the it was talking about the this this sort of post-structuralist idea of the transcendental signifier you know, there's this Derridean idea that, you know, every every ideological system has a sort of has has a kind of magical central point, which is the linchpin that holds the whole thing together. And this and it was the, this this phrase picked up on that. So technology is the singular is the transcendental signifier for a pluralistic world you know and the more the more pluralistic the world the more we rely on technology to act as our transcendental signifier you know it's the glue that holds us all together you know and it's so that we can only be this radically atomized because we have the internet to make us all feel like we still belong to something um and uh, i I've, I've, that was that was written what 25 30 years ago and i feel like you no know, nothing that's happened since has disabused me of the, thinking that it's an incredibly prophetic observation oh absolutely and, and, and hate crime laws are really are really about um, creating an ever more pluralistic world, um, in which we're ever more um, reliant on technology as our transcendental signifier. You know, in a sense, it's it's part of the same dynamic. If you understand, if you understand what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, but I do think that's an interesting point to contrast the Beijing versus the Washington cultural consensus. From there, in that the Chinese Communist Party has worked very hard to harmonize people inside and outside, and to actually not indulge in the various different politics of identity in their pursuit of a much more managed society, whereas the Western version thereof, which is, as, as I say, definitely tending in the same direction from a technological perspective, but the Western one has actually tried to get to that end of getting more submission to A very practical way to to rules and laws and a and a consensus through politics of division, which I think quite an interesting. One of the things I find we we encourage identity politics and they discourage it. So Mm
0: -hmm. how does that win out? (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, this is this is one of the things. uh, It's it's one of the things I track that I find really interesting at the moment. Uh, I mean, one of one of the I, I was. I wrote something a little while ago about Chinese millennials, disaffected Chinese millennials, that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of Chinese feminism somewhat, uh, which is a is a thing. And, and the the fascinating takeaway I, I I acquired from from that rabbit hole was that um, in the West um, feminism is regularly blamed for social atomization you know the rise of divorce and single mothers and the sexual revolution yada 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 um, a lot of people people lay the blame for a lot of that at the door of feminism but in china feminism is a consequence of a lot of the a lot of the social changes which in the West are blamed on feminism, in a sense, being both both of them are following very similar paths.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but the causality looks like it runs in opposite directions. Yes. Um, and what I've been <laughs> and that that sort of led led me to a what kind of crypto Marxist take on the whole thing, which says you know perhaps perhaps it's it's straightforwardly a fact that the material conditions. Of advanced techno-capitalism are sufficiently similar in both contexts that it doesn't matter which way you run the causality, somehow the, the upshot ends up being very similar, or you know, having, a, having a lot of parallels across both contexts. You know, both 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 countries are acquiring a class of disillusioned, disaffected, dropout millennials. Um, both, both of them are acquiring a, a collapsing birth rate, both of them are acquiring angry women who, who feel pulled in, pulled in torn between um professional obligations and you know pressures to to get married and have children you know in both in both situations there are there are similarities which emerge out of the material conditions you know a lot a lot of which are just baked into the 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 great the greater economic sort of systemic context Um, and it doesn't matter which direction you run the causality in, somehow the upshot seems to be very similar and it's it's just too early to tell whether, whether Xi Jinping's top-down efforts to mitigate some of the worst excesses of that will work or not. I mean, my, I'm afraid I'm, my, my money's on material conditions, but it's, it's too early to tell. I don't yeah, know whether it's going to work or not.
1: Comfort hides a multitude of sins, right? I mean, like, this is what they've got right, that perhaps some of the, the more sort of 20th century regimes got very wrong. Like, if you actually are giving people a raising standard of living you're not going to get much of a, of a pushback the challenges of course they're going to be able to keep on doing that but i suppose from my analysis they probably are because their economy is so closely tied to the u.s and economics always come down to guns at the end of the day force be all thrives finance unfortunately so i don't know but it is quite interesting what you say there i think it's come through quite a few of the points you made today sort of all roads lead to the same point. You can take very different routes to end up at a very similar situation. I think that that is what is definitely, if not concerning, at least of note to a lot of people who work in the sort of futures and trend space like myself, that it seems like we are moving to a global consensus in effect, if not actually in communication. So we are still speaking as though there are different alternatives on the table, but it's all it's all really the same policy. I mean, I don't know, if you I look think at it COVID, anything. was so extraordinary. Like every country across the world adopted almost exactly the same policy things, and we and we argued about very small differences as if they mattered. You know, like
0: I think if there's anything that's coming down the line on this, it's that what 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 I see us moving into, whether it's China or whether it's the west is much more a system of governments that's governance that's oriented towards managing the politics of scarcity um you know we're moving out of the politics of abundance and 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 this is really about managing the politics of post-growth um where we are already We've already left the era of never-ending growth. Um, nobody wants to talk about it, but that's that's happened. That's a done deal. Uh, we're now into the politics of scarcity. You know, whether that's um, finding finding a political narrative that makes it acceptable to reduce the number of people trying flying by aeroplane or find, finding ways to explain the fact that, you know, not everybody, not everything is available in the shops anymore. Um, we are, we're now into um, modes of governance, which are oriented towards managing the politics of scarcity. And I think that's going to intensify over the next few decades because we, we you can't have never ending growth. You know, as David Attenborough rightly said, you know, never ending, never ending growth and never, you know, on a planet of finite resources is, you know, to, to believe in that, you have to be a madman or an idiot. It's we, and we're we're already at the point where actually only madmen and idiots believe that anymore, and, and our, our our governance systems uh, are moving into a mode which is oriented towards managing that. Um, Peter Zayan, who I find very interesting on geopolitics, talks a lot about how uh, China's wolf warrior diplomacy is really about um, creating a domestic. It's really about speaking to a domestic audience and creating a sort of nationalistic fervor, which is able to. A- which is resilient enough to help China um, adjust to not just being able to fund eternal growth via eternal money printing anymore, because, because in fact that's 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 already in the, in the mail for China. And um, the, the, the basis of the CCP's social contract till now has just been um, funding u- using, using bottomless bank loans. To fund yeah. a kind of growth, which which then trickles down to the bourgeoisie and creates new millionaires and so on, and and really that and and they're close to running out of road on that for a number of complex reasons, and that you know wh- and when when they do run out of road, um, the only way they're going to be able to ensure any kind of internal social cohesion is by creating an external enemy. So a huge amount of what's going on, you know, the, the wolf warrior thing is really about looking about, you know. Building that sort of social consensus and creating a new, a new, a new slightly rather more belligerent social contract um, that will that will ensure coherence. I mean, you you could probably map that out to to other countries worldwide. Um, I I mean, geopolitics isn't really my beat, so I'm not I'm not going to risk myself on that. But I I, I would say you know there (laughs) are similar trends are referred elsewhere.
1: Um, Similar similar from the economics point, but on the on the China story in particular, it is worth. Pausing there in that China's strategy has always been slightly different to literally every other empire on Earth. I don't know if you've ever seen that famous histogram picture, sort of just literally shows empires in color streams going down a, down a page. If you haven't seen it, I'll try to link it to this, but it's definitely worth looking at. And it shows the rise and fall of empires and how they took up space and then, then retreated. China has, is the only unbroken line on that map. And they go through periods of like like a snake's belly. It sort of looks yeah. it looks a bit like that. They 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 and then when things get a bit risky, they retreat back into isolationism. And even in sort of living memory, you have seen China do that a few times. Sort of venture out a bit and then pull back. It's very different to the the more I want to say Western empires because they haven't really been sort of dominating expansionary empires that didn't actually come out of the the Western consensus. If you actually look at that map again, the Western models seem to be more like we go and take as much as we can. And then we sort of we overshoot ourselves. It's overshoot and collapse. Much like that's too much growth story. Right. I mean, like whether you're talking Roman or Byzantine or anything you look at, look at over there, all those Middle Eastern European empires went too big and they instead sort of had to have massive pullbacks so you end up with with nice mediterranean communities like italy and greece and all the rest of it but hardly hardly warring massive geopolitical powers left today and that's that's quite interesting to look like china's strategy has always been around sustainability rather than around growth i'm not talking sustainability from a in being doing good to the environment perspective but it's been a survival focused empire which I think is quite a quite an interesting mm-hmm. sort of sort of contrast. So that perhaps they have better strategies at at stacking power, perhaps they have less better strategies about periods of boom and bust, but that's you know, puts different different worldviews and different different sort of sense of continuity and what it means. And that's maybe an indictment on the rest of us who tend to be have a much shorter time preference, much less patience, and much less who cares what happens next. Like let's let's do this right now. And if, and if we want to look at that, I mean, there's not much that you can say against that when you look at what's happening in the world of completely virtualized finance right now. I think that's the point that we didn't touch on today, is how the, the financialized economy has decoupled from the, the real economy probably to the largest extent ever in the course of history. We've had many bubbles and booms and busts and the rest of it that the the claims on the real economy have become so tenuous that really the only way they're enforced is through arbitrary rule by law. If you look at what's happening in property rights in the United States with like asset forfeitures at will, we think that we've got this sort of social contract that's set up according to a set of certain rules, but it's very Hobbesian when you get right down to it. You know, the strong still take what they will and the rest of us suffer what we must, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Perhaps twas ever
1: thus <laughs> uh, well, it's all just we, we sort of pretend otherwise in between, and I think we're in sort of a, a a period of disenchantment as to believing our own our own fairy tales that we told ourselves about how our social contracts work for the good of all of us, <laughs> we're sort of being forced to confront that that's
0: not actually the case I think that's right um. And it's not at all clear to me how um, the politics of scarcity is going to play out. I mean, I think one of the, one of the most under-discussed um, issues on the left, you know, such as it is now, is um, the class politics of climate change. You know, they, they, the, there is lip service paid to the class politics of climate change. But when, pe- when you actually look at the class politics of climate policy, um that's that's just not something that anybody's would anybody's willing to touch you know you, you'll hear the left talk about how we must be welcoming to economic migrants um from areas that have been badly affected by climate change but you won't hear people talk about the knock-on effects on what the working class domestically of um environmental policies which will have a have a damaging effect but you only have to look at the gilets jaunes riots in france um to see to see what it looks like um when when you when you increase the levies on on carbon (laughs) on carbon consumption in a way in a way which harms the working class um, freight industry or delivery drivers or well any any number of any any number of people further down the social scale I mean this is even before we get for example to you know the, the the question of what we do what we do about the the incredibly harmful environmental effects of the contraception contraceptive pill uh, any number any number of other you know, I- issues where the left comes into collision with itself you know the moment oh, nappies, you leave right, right. yeah <laughs> Women must wash the... their own
1: menstrual cups in their and their children's diapers the, the, right the in order to save the planet right? right yeah <laughs> exactly that goes straight in the face of gender politics and
0: equality so. like right Just there so. right yeah i mean uh, one of the it's, and, and it's... nobody wants to talk about it i spent all of no. last year trying to sell a book On the the, the conflicts between women's liberation and um, environmental politics. And everybody said, this is forcefully argued and very interesting, but we don't want it.
1: We don't want it to touch that. Don't get involved. Don't be on the wrong side of history. No, 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 no. no. We're not doing that now. We are are all buckling down. But I think you've touched on a point that's very critical. And I do live in Africa. I live in one of the the more developed, prosperous parts of Africa. I live in Johannesburg. I can hardly say that I live a, a third world or a developing world existence but the politics of climate change from a geopolitical perspective too are also hugely under discussed about who actually is being asked to carry these costs and the big elephant in the room is that the reason that we are facing such a crisis at the moment is not actually because of big bad businesses and because of you know elites that overshoot their their own particular resources there's actually not too many of them and the big bad businesses are the big bad businesses that are keeping the lights on for people in places like South Africa through coal fueled electricity. And that a lot of the damage that's being done right now and that we're trying to mitigate against is really due to the fact that a whole lot of people are trying to drag themselves out of poverty, talking whole generations, whole continents worth of people are wanting what the developed West already has. And the unspoken consensus in the room is that really we're saying, you know, you shouldn't actually have that. We have to, we've eaten the cake and that there's actually none left for anyone else. So you get to pay the bill and we're going to leave now. So, yeah, very, very, very uncomfortable conversations. But we've been talking for a long time. This has been great. Do you want to have any closing comments, sort of tiny threads together? And how do we get hold of you if you want to continue this conversation?
0: No, I think this is a, I think the, 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 the commodification of everything, the politics of uh the politics of decline, the end of progress the the class politics of uh scarcity <laughs> if we were going to have a probably a black pilled conversation Bromwyn, which I, which it was this was always going to be let's face it. um I think that's a that, that that's a pretty good place to sum up i mean we, we we don't really have any answers, but I think we've sketched out some of the big questions uh it's this has been amazing thank you
1: thank you so much. <laughs>